In a traditional seminary, as I mentioned yesterday, in a traditional seminary, a seminary, the seminarians are strictly forbidden from going to hell unless he has the rector's permission. You heard that right. In a traditional seminary, a seminarian can't go to hell unless he has the rector's permission. Why is that? Why does a a seminarian need the rector's permission to go to hell? Because no one is allowed to read anything that would be a grave danger to his faith or morals without a serious reason and permission from his superiors. Well, Father, what does reading something have to do with going to hell? Well, in a traditional seminary, hell is a special part of the library. It's the part of the library that has the bad books, books written by people like Martin Luther or John Calvin or Father Richard McBrien. Of course, no one is allowed to read anything that would be a grave danger to his faith or morals without a serious reason and the permission from his superior. So the seminarian, if he has a reason to refer to Luther, for example, he gets permission. Otherwise, he should stay away. Why? Again, because no one is allowed to read anything that would be a grave danger to his faith or morals without a serious reason, permission of a superior. It's serious. It's so serious that St. Alphonsus teaches that one bad book can ruin an entire convent of good nuns. Just one bad book. Okay, so why on Good Shepherd Sunday of all days am I telling you a story about going to the hell section of a library in a seminary? Originally, I was all geared up to tell you a story about uh, raising sheep when we came up, but the principle that no one is allowed to read anything that would be a grave danger to his faith and morals without a serious reason, permission of his peers, applies not just to seminarians, but to every Catholic everywhere in the world. And it doesn't just apply to bad books. This principle applies to books, magazines, movies, videos, DVDs, websites, and even sermons preached by heretics and non-Catholics. That's where this little item comes in. See, a former professor of mine, a brilliant man, a man who in spite of all his confusion and serious errors I'm actually still very fond of, this man is giving a talk today in Kansas City. His name is uh, Jerry Matitix. Unfortunately, he is now teaching, and I will quote, I, this is Jerry Matitix, believe and publicly teach that the Catholic Church has always infallibly taught that because heretics are not members of the Catholic Church, they cannot validly hold office in the Church according to divine law, and that should they seem to hold such offices, the believing Catholic must conclude that their election to and possession of such offices is null and void. This would include not only the manifest heretics, John the Twenty-Third, Paul the Sixth, John Paul I, and John Paul II, but also the manifest heretic and present illicit and invalid occupant of the See of Peter, Benedict the Sixteenth, who has the further handicap, unlike his immediate four predecessors, of not even being validly consecrated a bishop, which, in addition to all other considerations, makes it impossible for him, therefore, to function as bishop of Rome. Close quote. That's pretty bad. Right here in Kansas City. On Good Shepherd Sunday, we have a serious attack on Peter. We have a serious attack on the chief shepherd of the church. This is called sedificantism, the idea that there hasn't been a visible pope, in this case, since 1958. If we believe that, if we fall into this error, we can't be saved. We can't be saved. We'll deal with the question, the particular question of sedificantism on another day. But for today, I just want to note that this is a false explanation for a very real problem. People will look at the church and they get scandalized and they come to crazy conclusions. Let's just step back. Imagine for a minute that all of us were present 
in Calvary when our Lord was being crucified there on Good Friday, it was not obvious that this was God, that he was beaten, bloody, dying, crowned with thorns, hanging on that cross. That wasn't obvious that was God at all. In fact, most people were mocking and walking away. Who stayed faithful? The people that stayed close to Our Lady. St. John, St. Magdalene, and so forth. Many ran away. We're living through a time like that in the mystical body of Christ, where the church is bloody and wounded, beaten up, bruised. If we look and concentrate on all the wounds and bruises, it will be very difficult. We can scandalize ourselves by concentrating on this stuff and come up with false conclusions to a real problem. Yeah, we're in a crisis. That's kind of a no-brainer. But the explanation for the crisis isn't that the church went extinct or the Pope disappeared 50 years or so ago or something like that. That's not the explanation at all. We want to stay close to the Blessed Mother, say our rosary, live the message of Fatima, and not worry about things that we don't have to worry about. It doesn't mean playing ostrich and sticking our head in the sand. But it means recognizing there's a lot of problems but we're not here to solve them all. That's why we have a pope. That's why we have bishops. That's why we have priests. And we all have to answer for our state and life. So we want to do our duty in our state and life. Okay, back to this. Jerry is brilliant. He's brilliant. So is Luther. Jerry's brilliant. I'm not saying he's Luther. He's an excellent persuasive speaker. But he's leading people into destruction. So now I'm going to exercise my duty here on Good Shepherd Sunday. I'm going to exercise my duty as a sheep herder, and I'm going to categorically and completely forbid each and every one of you here from going to listen to him or from listening to any of his conferences which deal with any questions relating to sedevicantism. If you disobey and you lose your faith, at least at the judgment, I don't have to answer for that. This is serious. Faith is something that we don't hold by our own power, but we can lose by our own power. We hold it because God gave it to us. If we expose ourselves to serious occasions of losing it, we can Okay, it's dangerous. I know more than a few people that have been taken out by this very error. He's misleading a lot of people. Keep away, you've been warned. And now having said that, I want to beg in your charity and for the sake of his immortal soul to pray for him. Because he needs your prayers. He's confused and he needs your prayers. We don't want him to go any longer down the trail he's on. Okay, but remember this principle in general. No one is allowed to read, watch, or listen to anything that would be a grave danger to his faith or morals without a serious reason and the permission of his superiors. Now, having said that, let's turn to another current event. This one is sowing a lot of confusion in people's minds, and that's the release this past Friday of a document from the International Theological Commission. Now, before we touch on the contents of this document, let's by start, start by making sure we have a very clear idea of what exactly the International Theological Commission is. It's a group of 30 theologians from around the world. That's why it's called International. It's created in 1969. Most, important, most importantly, it's a purely advisory body. Burn that into your mind. It is a purely advisory body. Its only function is to offer advice to the congregation for the doctrine of the faith. They offer advice. They have no teaching office in the church. Okay, what kind of advice do they give? Let me read a quote from the last document the International Theological Commission came out with back in 2004. I'll let you weigh this theological advice for yourself. Quote, 
Since it has been demonstrated that all living organisms on Earth are genetically related, it is virtually certain that all living organisms have descended from the first organism, dot, dot, dot. While the story of human origins is complex and subject to revision, physical anthropology and molecular biology combine to make a convincing case for the origin of the human species in Africa about 150,000 years ago and a humanoid population of common genetic lineage. These people don't even know how to read the scientific literature that's for this. I'm sorry, that's my gloss. You know, I could go off for an hour, but I won't. However, it is to be explained, the decisive factor in human origins was a continually increasing brain size. I think it's shrinking in this case, culminating in that of Homo sapiens. With the development of the human brain, the nature and rate of evolution were permanently altered. With the introduction of the uniquely human factors of consciousness, intentionality, freedom, and creativity, biological evolution was recast as social and cultural evolution. Close quote. Paragraph 63. Okay, that's the kind of penetrating theological advice we've come to expect in previous releases from the International Theological Commission. The only thing missing from this jewel we just quoted was the opening line, once upon a time. Keep in mind that this is an advisory board. It has no teaching authority. Now, having said that, let's turn to the topic at hand. On Friday, they released a document about limbo. And so this morning, we're going to review the actual teaching of the church. And to do that, we'll rely on the fathers and the doctors and the popes and the councils, okay? Now, for many, the doctrine of limbo is hard, painful truth. But a truth, even a painful truth, is better than a lie, even a soothing lie. We have it on the very best authority that truth will set you free. So let's see what the truth is. Okay, now, although we'll be inserting a lot of things here and there and editing quotations... Basically, we'll be quoting from and summarizing an article that came out in the third edition of the two, or third, uh, third edition of 2006 issue of Divinitas. That's a theological journal which is published in Vatican City. The article is entitled, Do All Deceased Infants Reach the Beatific Vision? That's the name of the article. The author is Father Brian Harrison. He's an oblate of wisdom who teaches in Ponce, Puerto Rico. Okay. Let's get started. Remember, that it, thanks to Adam, we're all conceived and born in sin, except for her. Okay? Adam chose sides in the war between devil and heaven. And on behalf of all mankind, he declared war. As inspired, inerrant word of God tells us in Ephesians 2, 3, by nature we are born children of wrath. We are born as enemy combatants in this war. We haven't done anything, but our chief declared war. And since he declared war, we're officially at war at God at the moment of our birth. Now, hold that. On the one hand, that's one truth. Also, we got to realize it's not as if God owes us heaven. We owe God everything. It's not as if God's in debt to us and he owes us heaven. Everyone needs to burn this into his mind. God does not owe me heaven. He loves me. He loves me so much that he sent his only begotten son down here to earth to suffer and die for me on the cross so that I could have eternal life with him in heaven. But he does not owe me eternal life. What does that mean? It means that none of us can say to God, it's unfair if I don't get to heaven. It's not unfair. He doesn't owe me heaven. 
And not only that, it also means we can't say to God, it's unfair that everyone can't get to heaven. We can't say that to God. It is not unfair that everyone doesn't get to heaven. But wait a minute, Father. Doesn't God want all men to be saved? Yes, of course he does. It would be heretical to deny that God desires the salvation of men. But in spite of that, we know that still some men go to hell. In fact, Pius II, Pope Pius II, condemned the statement that all Christians are saved. It is condemned to say that all Christians are saved. If that's condemned, it means the, 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 the contradictory proposition must be true, which is some Christians are not saved, or in other words, some Christians are damned. So God desires the salvation of men, but not all men are saved. God wants all men to be saved, but there are certain conditions that must be met. And one of these conditions is baptism, or at the minimum, the desire for baptism. That's one of the conditions. And as we know, no one can desire baptism unless he has the use of reason. Okay, having set the preliminaries, now let's consider the teaching of the church with regard to the baptism of babies. Anyone that doesn't have the use of reason. In regard to this matter, the great father, bishop and doctor of the church, in fact, he's called the doctor of grace because this is his area of expertise. St. Augustine says, quote, Whoever says that infants are alive in Christ, even when they depart this life without being baptized, is really both opposing the apostolic preaching and condemning the whole church, which runs hastily with infants to the baptismal font, because it is believed without any doubt that otherwise these infants cannot possibly be alive in Christ. Close quote. The Holy Doctor also states, quote, If you want to be a Catholic, do not believe, do not say, do not teach that infants carried off by death before they baptize can attain the remission of original sin. Close quote. That is so important, I'll repeat it. If you want to be a Catholic, do not believe, do not say, Do not teach that infants carried off by death before being baptized can attain the remission of original sin. Close quote, St. Augustine, Father, Bishop, and Doctor of the Universal Church. In 417, Pope Innocent I, Pope St. Innocent I, excuse me, wrote to a bishop synod, quote, the idea that infants can be granted the rewards of eternal life without even the grace of baptism, is utterly foolish. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. The Ecumenical Council of Florence, 1442, states, quote, regarding children, indeed because of danger of death, which can often take place, since no help can be brought to them by another remedy than through the sacrament of baptism, through which they are snatched from the domination of the devil and adopted among the sons of God, the most holy Roman church advises that holy baptism ought not to be deferred for 40 or 80 days, but it should be conferred as soon as it can be done conveniently. Close quote. The Catechism of the Council of Trent states that, quote, baptism is necessary for the salvation of all, that this law is to be understood not only of adults, but also of infants, and that the church has received this from apostolic tradition as confirmed by the concurrent doctrine and authority of the fathers, close quote. 
the Catechism of Christian Doctrine, published by the order of Pope St. Pius X, states in question 100, quote, Where do infants go who die without baptism? Answer, infants who die without baptism go to limbo, where they do not enjoy the sight of God, but also do not suffer. This is because, having original sin and it alone, they do not merit heaven, but neither do they merit purgatory or hell. Close quote. 1951, Pope Pius XII states, quote, The newly born child receives supernatural life with baptism. In the present economy of grace, there is no other way to communicate that life to the child who has not attained the use of reason. Above all, the state of grace is absolutely necessary at the moment of death. Without it, salvation and supernatural happiness the beatific vision of God, are impossible. Close quote. In the instruction on infant baptism issued in 1980, the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which was approved by Pope John Paul II, we read, quote, The Church has shown by her teaching and practice that she knows no other way apart from baptism for ensuring children's entry into eternal happiness. Close quote. In 1264, the Second Ecumenical Council of Lyon, in 1321, Pope John XXII in his epistle to the Armenians, and yet again in 1439, the Ecumenical Council of Florence defined infallibly that the souls of those who die in mortal sin or those who die in original sin only. Now, the only people who die in original sin only are infants and anyone else that has never attained the use of reason, that hasn't made a moral act. The souls of those who die in mortal sin or the souls of those who die in original sin only descend immediately into hell, but to undergo different penalties. Now, what does that mean, that they descend immediately into hell, but undergo different penalties? The great cardinal and doctor of the church, St. Robert Bellamine, explains. It means that the souls of the damned plunge into the very depths of the fires of hell, but the souls of the unbaptized babies go to the fringe of hell, a place where the flames do not reach and babies do not have the beatific vision, but which is nonetheless a place of perfect and perpetual natural happiness. They go to the fringe of hell. That's why it's called limbo. The word limbo comes from the Latin word limbus, which means the edge, the fringe, the border that surrounds anything. That's what the word actually means. In his book on purgatory, St. Robert Bellamine says, quote, The common teaching of the scholastic theologians is that within the earth there are four inner chambers, one for the damned, another for those being purged of sins, a third for those infants who have died without receiving baptism, and a fourth, which is now empty, but once held those just men who died before the passion of Christ. Close quote. The holy doctor explains that the damned souls are burning in the very center of the earth. The next level up, just above that is purgatory, where the poor souls are getting purified by the very same flames that are tormenting the damned. Just above purgatory is the limbo of the children, where the fire does not reach. And right above that is the limbo of the fathers, which was emptied out on Easter Sunday when Christ our Lord, who had descended down into there, brought all those souls up to the surface of the earth, and then 40 days later took them with him as he ascended up into heaven. What's the situation of those babies in limbo? St. Thomas explains that the limbo of children is a place where the souls of children who die before reaching the age of reason without baptism reside. Because they died without grace, they lack the beatific vision. 
but is a place of perpetual and perfect happiness at the level of nature. They have perfect and eternal happiness, natural happiness. Think of the mercy of God. The enemy combatants, but they've never sinned. They've never offended him personally. So he doesn't punish them. He's giving them perfect natural happiness. This is a mystery in itself because happiness in this life turns into pain after all. I mean, if you really love pizza, there's only so much to eat till it starts getting gross and etc. Huh? We don't understand natural happiness completely, but it's perfect natural happiness. So it shows a very great mercy of him. Okay, what about aborted babies? In 1588, Pope Sixtus V answered this question in his constitution, Ephrenatum. The Pope commands that anyone in the papal states, now remember, until 1870 when the Freemasons attacked, the Popes ruled an area for centuries in the central part of what's now Italy that was known as the papal states. So they were secular rulers too. Not only did they rule a church, they had a vast area of land where they were like the king of that part of Italy that's called the papal states. Okay, Pope Sixtus V commands that anyone in the papal states who carries out abortions and sterilizations should be put to death. That's the Pope, the Victor Christ himself, commanding the death penalty for these sort of criminals. He strikes out against, quote, now I'm going to quote the Pope, the barbarity of those who do not shrink from those cruel slaughter of fetuses still coming to maturity in the shelter of their mother's wombs. Who indeed would not detest a crime as horrific as this? For its certain outcome is that not just bodies, but still worse, even souls are wantonly sacrificed. The soul of the unborn infant bears the imprint of God's image. It is a soul for whose redemption Christ our Lord shed his precious blood, a soul capable of eternal blessedness and destined for the company of angels. Who, therefore, would not condemn and punish with the utmost severity the desecration committed by one who has excluded such a soul from the blessed vision of God. Such a person is as responsible as a human being can be for preventing the soul's attainment of the throne prepared for it in heaven and has deprived God of of the service of his own creature. Close quote, Pope Sixtus V, Vicar of Christ. What has the Vicar of Christ told us over and over again in this quote? It's a hard truth, but we have to face up to it. The Holy Father states that abortionists have excluded souls from the beatific vision, that abortionists prevent the souls of aborted babies from getting to the throne that God had prepared for them in heaven. That's what happens to aborted babies. It's horrible. They're perfectly naturally happy. But they're not in heaven. That's why all the abortionists aren't converting. They're not martyrs. There might be some occasionally, you know, where Satanists are doing it. But they're going. They're being cut, rotor-rooted, and salt-cured out of our carefully laid priorities for economic reasons or reasons of convenience or just selfishness by and large. These are not sacrificed like the holy innocents. They're not getting to heaven. What about the modern objection that we hear over and over again, that the idea of limbo for unbaptized babies is merely a hypothesis? Here's a typical example I caught out of a Catholic news service article. Quote, many Catholics grew up thinking limbo, 
the place where babies who have died without baptism spend eternity in state of natural happiness, but not in the presence of God, was part of Catholic tradition. Instead, it was a hypothesis, a theory held out as a possible way to balance the Christian belief in the necessity of baptism with belief in God's mercy. Close quote. Well, if you haven't had spuds in your ears, I think you can answer that one already. What about this claim that limbo is only a hypothesis? We've already heard more than enough to answer that objection. But Father Harrison answers, quote, Those who now talk about limbo as only ever having been a mere hypothesis, as distinct from church doctrine, are giving a very misleading account of the state of the question. Such talk leaves the impression that the church traditionally held, or at least implicitly admitted, that another acceptable hypothesis for unbaptized infants would be their eternal salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. The only accepted alternate hypothesis was not heaven, but a very mild pain of sense in hell, as well as being eternally deprived of the beatific vision. In short, the fact of the deprivation itself, the eternal loss of the beatific vision, was traditional Catholic doctrine, not a mere hypothesis. Close quote. The fact of the eternal loss of the beatific vision for babies who die without baptism is traditional Catholic doctrine. The fact of the eternal loss of the beatific vision for babies who die without baptism is traditional Catholic doctrine. The argument is over whether they suffer because some of the fathers thought they might be suffering because of their original sin. But the other fathers and the theologians and the teaching of church said, no, they can't be suffering because they haven't personally offended. That The argument wasn't over where they are. It's whether they're suffering or not. Okay. Amazingly enough, one well-known dissenter, Father Richie McBrien, a man who usually seems to get his theology out of a crackerjack box or, or maybe out of a Ouija board, I'm not sure which, gets the implications right in his response to the International Theological Commission document. Now, this will be the only time I can guarantee you will ever hear me quote Father McBrien approvingly. Father McBrien, quote, If there's no limbo, and we're not going to revert to St. Augustine's teaching that unbaptized infants go to hell, we're only left with one option, namely, that everyone is born in the state of grace. Baptism does not exist to wipe away the stain of original sin, but to initiate one into the church, close quote, Father Richard McBrien. Father McBrien is absolutely right. If there's no limbo, and we're not going to say that unbaptized infants go to hell, we're left only with one option, namely that everyone is born in the state of grace. Baptism does not exist to wipe away the stain of original sin, but initiate one of the church. That's absolutely correct. But remember what the council, Second Council of Lyon, Pope John the Twenty Second. An ecumenical council of Florence defined infallibly the souls of those who die in mortal sin or those who die in original sin only descend immediately into hell but to undergo different penalties. Father McBride is absolutely right. And in case there's any doubt, that's exactly what some of these theologians on their National Theologic Commission are thinking. Listen carefully. The fact that God loves his creatures so much that he sent his son to die in order to save them means that there exists an original grace, just as there exists an original sin, Redemptorist Father Tony Kelly, an Australian member of the International Theological Commission, told Catholic News Service. The existence of original grace justifies hope beyond hope 
that those who die without ever having had an opportunity to be baptized will be saved. Well, there you have it. There you have it. This theologian has just confirmed what Father McBrien says. If there's no limbo, and if we're not going to say that unbaptized infants go to hell, so they're not going to limbo, they're not going to hell, then we're only left with one option. Everyone's born in the state of grace, original grace. Talk about a novelty. We're not going to get into this today, but if you're interested in pursuing this uh, topic further, study Pelagianism. It's an early heresy, Pelagianism. Plagianism, that's the heresy. Study that. Okay, let's sum this up. On the one hand, the traditional Catholic doctrine that comes to us from apostolic times has been consistently taught by the fathers, the doctors, the scholastic theologians, the popes, and the councils is that babies who die without baptism will never have the beatific vision that comes to us from apostolic times. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have modern theologians Inventing the concept of original grace. So why is she special? We have modern theologians claiming that we can have hope beyond hope, that babies who die without baptism will have the beatific vision. Well, which is it? Now, before we close, let's take a few moments to consider just some of the implications here. If since apostolic times, the church has been wrong on the absolute necessity Babies being baptized for their salvation. The church has been wrong since the very beginning on such a fundamental and essential point of doctrine, on such a fundamental truth. Then what else is the church wrong on? What is it to prevent us from concluding that all the other teachings of the church, especially the ones we find most inconvenient in our personal lives, are only hypotheses. What's to stop it? Why shouldn't we just party? Obviously, I'm being rhetorical there. This kind of malarkey is not a joke. It's dangerous. Our holy religion is true. These truths are treasures. They're treasures. There's treasures that come from heaven to us. They're treasures that were handed down from us by God himself. They're truths that are worth dying for. The truths of our holy religion are worth dying for. We have to take them all. All of them. Or we're not Catholic. We can't be saved. They're worth dying for. Let's close. Father Harrison summarizes his article by stating, quote, I submit that the following also expresses an already definitive teaching of the ordinary and universal magisterium which could be solemnly defined. The church has not and never can have any authority whatsoever to affirm that under the new covenant of our Lord Jesus Christ, anyone who dies unbaptized before attaining the use of region reaches the beatific vision, close quote. And he closes his article with a statement that I am going to close with and make my own. Quote, I would, conclude these observa- I would conclude these observations simply by affirming my firm loyalty and obedience to Holy Mother Church, to whose infallible judgment should it be handed down on this matter, I shall most willingly make my own. Close quote and amen.